Friends, good morning. Delighted to see you today. Uh, great to have you with us. I trust each of you had a uh, joyful celebration of Thanksgiving with your families. And we're especially delighted today to have Catherine Davis alive and well on the front row. Good to see each one of you. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 22. That's right. It's the last chapter of uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, Lord willing, we will complete the, this uh, study in a week or so. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I don't want to say anything and, and jinx it, you know, so I'll just kind of leave it vague. And, but uh, we'll be wrapping up soon. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, uh, still continues the last section which described not only the new heavens and the earth, but that great city temple in paradise referred to as New Jerusalem. And this continues that account. Uh, and let's look at God's word as we begin today. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, as Tim so aptly noted, Let's listen to God's very words this morning. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Word of God. Let's uh, uh, pray and ask His help as we begin this conclusion of John's vision uh, this morning. That What follows is a, a concluding section, but this is the last of His heavenly visions uh, that we see today. So let's ask for the Lord's help as we look into this. Uh, section. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged blade. And we pray that these five verses from the book of Revelation that you breathed out to us through your apostle John would be alive today. That they would be alive, that they would uh, bring life to us, our weary souls that are here today, or um, our uh, whatever state our soul is in, thirsty, hungry, uh, tired, or perhaps rejoicing, whatever our condition may your word be food to us. Uh, Jesus, nourish us with the truth of your word this morning. Uh, quicken us with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen me as I preach Help us now as we look to your words, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In my junior year of high school at good old Palatine High in Palatine, Illinois, outside of Chicago, 
I read a book from my English class called Two Years Before the Mast. Now, I have to confess, outside of the Hardy Boys, I think this was the, full, the first full-length book I had ever read in my life. It's, uh, you know, it was quite a hefty thing. I had to take the whole number of pages and divide it up by the number of days I had left to finish the book, and I had to lock myself in my bedroom so I could finish the thing in time to write the book report that was due. And it was quite a hefty chore. It was some slow going and a few parts of two years before the mast. I remember wondering if I would ever finish it. It was written by an American author. His name was William Henry Dana. Uh, describes two years that he spent at sea as a merchant seaman. He was from the Boston area. And his ship sailed from Boston to California where uh, his ship, Uh, Pilgrim collected animal hides that were bound to be taken back for Boston. Well, Dana was uh, desperately eager to return back home, and so he was assigned to a different ship that could return him sooner. This ship was called the Alert, and he describes in his book uh, the Alert's harrowing voyage home around the tip of South America uh, during an Antarctic winter. Uh, week after week negotiating this treacherous passage around the Cape during which uh, Dana and other seamen had to race up and down the ice-covered rigging of the ship to furl and unfurl the sails. And, And finally the alert arrived in Boston. But Dana's homecoming was surprising to him Uh, It had an unexpected ending. It's described like this with his ship at anchor in Boston Harbor after a two-year absence. Dana should have been elated. A year before, the thought of being home drove him wild with excitement. It's about, you know, it's like those last, the last hour of a 12-hour car ride. That should have been how he felt. But Dana's own words say, now that I was actually there and in sight of home, the emotions which I had so long anticipated feeling, I did not find. And in their place was a state of very nearly entire apathy. Apathy. And he couldn't explain it. He couldn't account for the change in his disposition that left him feeling nothing at home. I think it's often what you and I experience. This man commenting on Dana's voyage goes on to say, in this life, realization often fails to deliver what expectation advertises. I think that's a lot of truth to that. In this life, realization often fails to deliver what expectation advertises. The family vacation doesn't live up to your expectations. Something breaks while you're away. The car breaks down, the condo's air conditioner goes out, you know. And that longed-for Christmas gift that either you received or you gave 
Instead of uh, joy, it ends in disappointment. That anticipated time with relatives is only a relatively good time, as they say. It's true, in this life, realization often fails to deliver what expectation advertises. Very little, it seems, lives up to expectations. What about when it comes to heaven? What about life in the new heaven and earth? Is there any danger of repeating Dana's disappointment as sailing into Boston Harbor? Will our homecoming be tainted with apathy like his was? I mean, after all, we're just going to be floating on clouds and strumming our harps, right? According to Bugs Bunny. Well, there's a genuine need for us to see what God's Word has to say about life in eternity. And I know this sermon won't exhaust what life in eternity will be like. <laughs> I mean, how could it? Uh, but there has been so much misinformation in recent years Accounts of those who've allegedly visited heaven and then returned to describe it in a best-selling book. Uh, you wonder how that's possible when the Apostle Paul himself was forbidden to speak about his visions uh, that when he was taken to the third heaven, uh, not allowed to discuss them. John, his account before us, it is apostolic, written by a genuine apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ. It's breathed out by the Spirit of God. This account is, is the only heavenly account I know of that is actually given to us for our instruction. And uh, we're encouraged to read it and read it out loud even. Uh, this is what we've been given. What will we experience in the new heavens and earth. Again, I can't exhaust this topic, but I want to introduce what will life in eternity be like. That's what we want to address today. What will life in the new heaven and new earth be like? And as we uh, look into our passage today, John tells us that there are two key features of life in the new heaven and earth. Two features of life in eternity that our passage describes. The first feature that John uh, describes to us is the garden of God. Uh, the garden of Eden that we find in Genesis 3 at the very beginning of the Bible. We now find restored and renewed at the very end of the Bible. Uh, new and improved in the new heaven and earth. And there are two notable elements in this restored garden, in the garden of God. The first we find is the water of life. And we see this as verse 1 of chapter 22 begins. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Uh, our scripture reading today lies behind this passage uh, you will hear echoes of Ezekiel in the words of John 
throughout these five verses. But uh, just a few moments ago, the, the angel describing it to John summarized it like this in Ezekiel 47, 9. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. Other Old Testament prophets described this very same river as they received the word of God. Zechariah chapter 14 as well describes, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The prophet Joel uh, wrote this, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. It was the kind of water that Jesus described in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, it says, everyone who drinks of this water uh, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this is the the river. It's it's described several places in the Word of God, announced of ahead of time. There's, there's even a river flowing in Genesis 3, and this seems to be a renewal, a restoration of that stream that spread into four rivers in Genesis 3. But here we see this, this great water of life in the garden of God. As John goes on, he describes four characteristics of the water of life. Uh, the first characteristic that he uh, attributes to the water of life it is, as its name uh, implies, life-giving water. It is water of life, means that it is, its essence is to give and impart life, water that brings life. And, and this water brings us life through fellowship with God. A after all, the essence of eternal life is fellowship with God. Jesus tells us this in John 17 verse 3. And this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Describing this water of life, the life-giving property of this water, Bible scholar William Hendrickson says, This river is the river of life, for it symbolizes eternal life, salvation, full and free, the gift of God's sovereign grace, and what is life but fellowship with God? Our constant fellowship and communion with God in eternity, in the new Heaven and new earth will bring us a, a new quality and a quantity of life, eternal life. It's what we taste, have a, have a taste of now, but only a taste. 
through our uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, but then we will drink fully from this life-giving water. John goes on, secondly, he says that this water is not only life-giving, it is as well untainted. And this is something that should ring home uh, to us in these days because we have great concerns, don't we, about tainted water? Some of you are holding a bottle right now because you're not sure about the church's drinking water. You don't trust the church's drinking water. I've, I've drunk in it, and I'm fine. But we have concerns about water all the time. The city of Canton every so often will get a message on our phone and it advises us to boil, of water, boil our tap water because of possible contamination. I mentioned water bottles that we now buy in great quantities so we can have a, a bottle to drink uh, wherever we go when we're out in places. Uh, our concern extends to our tap water. There's hardly any of us here who probably don't have a filter on our water or on our refrigerator door where we can drink filtered water, uh, water that, or, or a filter that will strain out the unwanted minerals that are in our tap water. It's, it's a significant concern to us. But look at this second characteristic as verse 1 goes on. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Whatever bottle, uh, water brand has the name crystal in it is, is nothing compared to this. It means that our fellowship with God will not be tainted by sin. Our ancient adversary, the devil, is in the lake of fire at this point, and our fellowship with God and with the Lamb will be uninterrupted. Nothing will come between us and our God. Water will be untainted. John goes on to say, not only is it untainted, but it will be constant. Uh, look at verse 1 again in the last phrase, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Flowing is a present participle, and, and it describes continuous action, never-ending stream. Uh, our, our constant life-giving fellowship with God will be un interrupted. Back in chapter 7, we read this, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Our, our fellowship with God and with the lamb will be constantly bubbing, bubbling up and nourishing and refreshing our souls in the new heaven and the new earth. This is its third characteristic. It will, it will be in constant supply. I don't know about you, but but when I am dying of thirst in the yard after I've done my yard work, which might be tomorrow, it feels like I can't get enough cold water. And what I've left for myself out in the garage in that Tervis tumbler is, is now lukewarm, uh, and it's not very pleasant and so I'll have to go inside but you know how it is when you're hot and thirsty it feels like you just can't get enough to cool yourself off that will not be the case in eternity have you ever had a time in the morning where you sit down to spend some time with the Lord and you've got your Bible open and Boy, you're looking at a verse, 
that is, as, as Tim alluded to, one that really kind of comes alive before you and God seems to use that verse in your life that day and, and it's greatly encouraging and God has provided you what you've needed that morning and, and it, it's just right and you're able to, you feel like you're able now to get up out of your chair and go shower and go to work. And then you get to work. And, you know, that precious time that you had just, you know, 45 minutes ago has, has kind of evaporated and now you're left with the real world, so to speak. And you're thirsty all over again. And your boss is demanding something or something's not going right at work and some shipment is late and something's broken down and some employee is acting up and something. And boy, it just never lasts, does it? Now, if you've got if you've got a way to make it last, then you come tag my hand and you take over right now. And you finish the sermon about how you make your time in the morning last all day long and it, you're gassed up all day. Because I hit the back door of the church and, and sometimes even coming to this church, uh, I run dry quick. It runs out. And can you imagine? Can you... Is it even possible to imagine a time where your fellowship with God and you know, you know what it's like when... when his word is alive to you in the morning and it, it just brings such great comfort to you and encouragement. And can you imagine that going on and on and on and on to where your soul never runs Dry. Well, I'm ready for that. Because that's what this describes. Crystal clear. Oh. Flowing. From the very throne of God. Not only is it constant, lastly, John describes it as central in the New Jerusalem. Uh, let me pick up the last line of verse 1 and go into verse 2. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And the word for street John uses is... Uh, 
is a special word. It refers to a broad avenue. If you've seen, you know, if you've watched uh, TV that shows uh, scenes from the Mideast, you know how narrow most streets in the Mideast uh, in eastern uh, desert cities are. They're quite, quite narrow. I refer you to any episode of Indiana Jones where you can get a glimpse of what a street in the, in the ancient Near East would be like, narrow. But this is a broad avenue. And this phrase, through the middle of the street, reveals that this ever-flowing water, that this life-giving fellowship with God is at the very heart of the city. This life-giving fellowship is at the very heart of our eternal state. Again, what we enjoy in a limited sense here in this life, what we enjoy with difficulty here and now will be at the very center of our existence in eternity. What is, what is uh, confined to uh, a period of t uh, a time in the morning relatively short will now expand to be our chief pursuit and our greatest joy. Uh, this fourth characteristic is that the water of life will be central to our existence in eternity. It was Friday, October 18th, 1991. It was the conclusion of the Chicago Symphony's year-long celebration of their uh, 100th year. And on this evening, before the, the performance of the symphony, they held a dinner uh, banquet kind of thing for their patrons, their paying patrons that supported the symphony. And every patron uh, received the gift of a, of a little souvenir clock. It was, a, it was a, as symphonies go, it was a, a spectacular evening for the first time in history. They had three conductors uh, present, the two former conductors and the, the current conductor, they all were on the same stage. It was a large kind of homecoming. It was a, a, a large to-do. And as uh, one of the previous uh, conductors, Daniel Barenboim, sat down at the uh, piano, Sir George Schulte lifted his baton to begin Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto and uh, the, the patrons collectively inhaled as it, as it began, and then the Tchaikovsky's uh, great piano concerto took over. And then just, just a few minutes later, it was 9.15 actually, uh, things started to go south, as the saying goes, out in the auditorium. It wasn't a cough that interrupted the music that everyone heard. There was a tiny little beep sounding. This was followed by another and another. And pretty soon, across the auditorium, there was this constant beeping going on. And Barenboim and the symphony uh, plowed ahead, but it was tough going because everyone was distracted by this beeping and the music suffered. And Finally, after the first movement, the executive director of the symphony came out on the stage to, to uh, explain what happened to everyone. The manufacturer of the souvenir clocks 
had set the alarms to go off at 9.15. So there was only one way to get on with the concert, and he asked, would everyone please surrender their souvenir clock to an usher uh, so they can continue the concert. Life is like this, trivial little things beeping. But this water of life will become central to our existence. There will be no beeping, so to speak. There will be no distractions. It will consume our attention. This glorious life-giving fellowship with God that flows from the throne that is constant. It will be the center of our existence. This is the first element in the garden of God. This renewed Eden that we find. There's a second element that John goes on to describe for us. Not only the water of life, the second thing that the angel points out to him in this garden is the tree of life. This is the same tree we saw in the early chapters of Genesis. The, the very tree that Adam and Eve were banned from after they had eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were banned barred from this tree. But this tree of life now reappears in the new heaven and earth. And look at verse 2 again, and let's continue uh, uh, after that beginning phrase. It says, also, this is a second thing the angel shows John, also on either side of the river, the tree of life on both sides of the river. So here again, we're given a really strong clue that this is the first creation reestablished, the garden of Genesis 1 and 2 renewed in the new heaven and earth. But, but as the saying goes, this is new and improved. Uh, scholars note the grammar of this phrase, and perhaps you're wondering how a tree can be on either side of the river. And so the grammar suggests that this is not just one tree, but a, perhaps a grove of trees referred to collectively. Like sometimes we describe a, a clump of trees as an oak grove. We don't mean there's one oak tree in that grove. We mean there's a bunch of oak trees. And so the, they conclude that this is, is probably what's going on here, uh, that this is not just a tree with some kind of tunnel underneath it where the, water, where the water of life flows, but this is a, a grove of the tree of life. Uh, there's more than one. What was one in Genesis is now uh, a plentiful or a grove here in the recreated garden. Um, and this this tree or, or grove of trees, it, it nourishes, it satisfies, and it heals. 
Dr. Joel Beakey describes it like this, the tree of life represents irrevocable eternal life, satisfying happiness, and complete restoration from all damage to body and soul. Complete restoration to all damage to body and soul. John goes on in his description to name three characteristics of the tree, uh, of this tree and the grove of trees. Uh, the first, he says, uh, the first characteristic he attributes is that it has satisfying fruit. Verse 2 continues. It says, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Uh, there will be no more months because the sun is no more. There are the sun that governs the seasons is, is not there. We've already seen this, but the 12 kinds of fruit, as if there were 12 months, uh, 12 in, in addition to the number 7, the number 12 also uh, indicates completeness and fullness. And so this describes the fullness of God's provision for believers in eternity. And, and this is strengthened by the very next phrase, uh, yielding its fruit each month. Again, that's a present participle, and it, and it indicates ongoing action. Uh, these trees produce uh, fruit that is constant and abundant. There is more than enough to sustain God's people in the new heavens and earth. Believers in eternity will be abundantly satisfied with God's gracious provision for our needs. It is, first of all, uh, satisfying fruit. And it looks like I just put up all three there for you. Um, so, you know, go ahead and fill in your outline and then come back to me so we can... Uh, this, the second characteristic of this life-giving tree is that it has healing leaves. As verse 2 continues, it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The eternal life that the tree of life uh, uh, provides heals the scars and the misery that sin uh, has produced the sin that separates people, the, the sin that separates families, the sin that separates ethnic groups, social classes, and nations. Those divisions caused by sin will be completely healed in, in the new heaven and earth. Ezekiel also described this in our scripture reading today. The very last phrase of verse 12 that we read, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Again, listen to Dr. Beakey comment on this. All separations and divides between or among people will be done away with because the nations will be healed or made whole. Everything that separates us one from another will be removed. So this tree has healing leaves. Uh, it will exceed the claims of aloe vera and anything else that we use for healing. And lastly... The third characteristic John ascribes to the, the tree is that it reverses the curse. Uh, the curse on creation that came through Adam and Eve in the garden will com be completely 
and permanently reversed at the beginning of verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. And you recall when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God pronounced this curse against them and against humanity. Let me remind you of what uh, the curse was from Genesis 3 and verse 14. First the Lord cursed the serpent. Uh, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's a reference to Christ right there. Then to the woman, this is the curse on womanhood. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Lastly, to Adam. He said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. But in the new heaven and earth. That's gone. The curse that's affected every one of us. The curse that's affected our jobs. The curse that's touched everything in our human existence. It'll be removed. There'll be no more weeds to pull. <laughs> and in North Georgia... That means those thorny vines. Do you know what I'm talking about? They'll be gone. Our work, if we can call it that, our service to God in heaven will not feel like work. It'll be a joy. Because our work will no longer be cursed and we'll no longer have to do it by the sweat of our brow. Best of all, no more death. Because death, the last enemy, was defeated by Christ at the cross. So, G.K. Beale explains the curse of physical and spiritual death set on, human, on the human race by Adam in the first garden is permanently removed by the lamb in the last garden. The various sufferings and sorrows associated with the falling condition of humanity to which even the redeemed are susceptible will be entirely removed and no longer pose a threat in the new order. The tree of life Lastly, it reverses the curse. So this is the first thing, uh, the first uh, element of new heaven 
and new earth, uh, uh, eternity that we enjoy. John describes this garden of God and, and these two elements in the garden, the water of life, our unbroken and life-giving fellowship with God and with the Lamb, and the second element, the tree of life, the nourishing provision of God that satisfies and heals and restores spiritually. But in addition to the garden of God, which is kind of the first feature of these verses, there's another feature that go on that John goes on to describe, and that's the presence of God, the central and unifying factor in the new heaven and earth will be the light of God's presence. And I want to point out three things in connection uh, with God's presence. The first thing we'll see in connection with God's presence is his throne. Uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be central in our experience of, of him. Look at verse 3. Again, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Uh, the throne takes center stage in eternity, occupied by both God the Father and God the Son. Uh, recall these words from earlier, uh, Revelation 3, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This describes Christ ruling as a co-regent, a, a co-ruler with his father in his father's realm. And we recall, recall that Christ is worthy to, to sit at his right hand and co-rule with the Father because with his blood he ransomed people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. But we're also told in, in chapter 7, uh, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of water. And then chapter 5 says this, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders. And regarding this phrase, I'm, I'm pointing out to you, in the midst of the throne, uh, Joel Beakey says the Greek word translated as, as midst, not mist, but midst. M-I-D-S-T, refers more to, a more to a position of centrality than to being in the middle of the throne. The Lamb not only sits on the throne, he stands in front of the throne, a position that presents him as both central and accessible. What, what Dr. Beakey is trying to uh, point out is, is that Christ, seems to occupy center stage, as we might say. When we stand before the presence of God and before the throne of God in eternity, and we just have to stop there and say, what? When we stand before the presence of God and before the throne of God, 
it seems to be Jesus Christ in particular that we will behold in glory the, the lamb that was slain in the midst of the throne ruling alongside the father. The lamb will be prominent. The first thing we will see in connection to the presence of God is his throne. The second thing that believers will see in connection with the presence of God is his face. Verse 3 goes on. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Let me pause there. Uh, the word worship is a specific reference. There is a term that means to bow the knee. Uh, we're familiar with that. That's uh, prominent in the Old Testament word uh, for worship. But in this, in this particular New Testament word, the, the, the term means to perform duties as a priest. As a priest in the temple would serve before the Lord as Zechariah did in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. This refers to that kind of service. Uh, a very specific kind of worship John is thinking of. Believers worship the Lord by serving Him as priests in this city temple called New Jerusalem. Every believer will worship the Lord this way by serving as a priest before Him. It is the, the grand and ultimate fulfillment of that phrase in Exodus, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. But now go on and look at the beginning of verse 4. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Because all believers will serve before the Lord as priests, they will enjoy the incredible privilege that was previously only granted to one man, the high priest of Israel. And just once a year, the high priest of Israel would enter the Lord's presence and again, this uh, slide we saw last week into this red circle, which is uh, uh, circling the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, if you would. This one man would enter this place one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, to, to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And this would... Doing this, he would atone for Israel's sins. But in the new heaven and, and earth, all believers enjoy this privileged access, according to verse 4, and, and they will see his face. And the reason being, it says, and his name will be on their foreheads. Uh, again, referring to the high priest. Previously, only the high priest bore the Lord's name on his forehead. Uh, Exodus 28 explains it. You shall uh, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. 
and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. So on the high priest's uniform, if you would, uh, this is the high priest's outfit. If you have an ESV study Bible, you can find this in the Old Testament. Uh, I think in the book of Leviticus there, so of course, is the breastplate with 12 stones. Uh, there's a pocket here in which he carried the Urim and Thummim. But this is his turban, and this is what we're uh, describing. And this is where it uh, would say, holy to the Lord on his turban. But it's not just the high priest now. Now every believer bears the Lord's name on their forehead according uh, to chapter 3. We read this in chapter 3. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the name... Uh, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. This is a privilege that, that even Moses never experienced. As a believer under the old covenant, he could not see God's face and lift. And God explained this to him in Exodus 33. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. But here in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, it says every believer will behold his face. Not only will we see the throne of God in the new heaven and the new earth, the second thing we see in connection with his presence is his face as we serve him as priests. This is dramatic, folks. And then the third thing connected is his light. The light of God's glory will fill the new heaven and earth. Look at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. To begin with, note that everything related to the old order of things has vanished. There will be no night or day based on the light of our sun and the earth's orbit. Zechariah 14 uh, describes this too, announced ahead of time, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Uh, uh, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Instead, the glory of God and of the Lamb will permeate the entire new creation, as verse 5 goes on to say, for the Lord God will be their light. Nothing will prevent the glorious light of Christ from filling the new heaven and earth. And one, one man comments, the, the clouds, the night... The dark shadows of the old world will no longer be able to diminish Christ's light, but he will shine as the lamp of the new world in an unlimited manner. This is, 
This is uh, probably the fullest possible answer to the prayer we often use for our benediction at the end of the service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and give you peace. So third, in connection with the presence of God, is his light. So this is the second aspect of eternal life that John sees in the new heaven and earth, the, the presence of God. It is the central and unifying factor, uh, the light of his presence. And now as, as, as John brings these visions to a conclusion, look at how he ends at the very tail end of verse 5. Look in your Bible. And they will reign forever and ever. This is the close as the Bible comes to, and they lived happily ever after. We will truly live happily and joyfully ever after in the glorious light of God's presence. But you cry out, well, what, what will I do on Thursday? I have no idea. I can only give you what's here. I know that on, since there won't be a sun, there really won't technically be a Thursday. Days of the week as we know them. But there will be the, the garden of God with the water of life and the tree of life. And there will be the presence of God that will be central to the new heaven and the new earth, his throne, his face, his light. The man uh, who wrote about William Henry Dana and two years before the mast, he uh, offers this conclusion, just one phrase I used at the beginning, in this life realization often fails to deliver what expectation advertises. But he goes on, he says, in the next, God guarantees an experience whose meaning deepens with each new discovery, whose significance grows with each new revelation, whose dimensions expand with every explanation. He promises an immorality, immortality as superior to forgiven mortality as grains of gold compared to sand. Life in the new heaven and new earth, in the garden of God, and in the presence of God. Thank you for this glimpse you've given us of life in the new heaven and earth. Father, through your servant John, I pray that you would keep us looking forward that our minds would be set on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen our steps, that you would strengthen weak knees and feeble hands as we uh, suffer according to your providence. Uh, we're grateful for the joys of Christ and fellowship with him in this life, but it's not enough. 
And we long for the day when we can see him face to face. So even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make this heavenly vision a reality for all eternity, that we can reign forever and ever with you. Savior, we pray in your name. Amen.